Luke chapter 5, verses 12 through 16. Hear the word of God. While he, that is Jesus, was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. But now, even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Amen. Let's turn our hearts. Let's seek the Lord together. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for your word. Your word that is sweeter than the honeycomb. Your word that is a true comfort, a strengthening comfort to our souls when we are weak and weary. It is exactly what we need when our hands and our feet don't want to move, when our hearts have grown cold or indifferent, when our minds drift here and there, not finding a resting place on you or anything of eternal value. You, through your word, by the power of the Spirit, bring us who are prone to wander back on the path. You bring our eyes back up to your throne to see your beloved Son, the one who is seated at your right hand, your King that you have set on your holy hill, Mount Zion. You show us Him once more and all is made right. In the times of greatest blessing, when we see Him, all is made right. In the times of the greatest difficulty, all is made right. We can tread through whatever faces us if we see Him. So Father, we ask that You would today give us a fresh sight of Jesus of Nazareth, of Your beloved Son. In that sight, would You cause us to join You in saying, this is my beloved in whom I am well pleased. In that sight, help us to join the author of the Song of Solomon and say, he is altogether lovely. And to be able to say with David, he is my God and my King. With Thomas, he is my Lord and my God. We need this so desperately. Not nearly as desperately as we know or ought to feel. So give us some sense of that great need. But more than that sense of need, give us an overarching, superabounding knowledge of Christ's sufficiency for us. He is sufficient for us in His person. There's no lack in Him whatsoever. Infinite, eternal, almighty, unchangeable God in wisdom, power, knowledge, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. 
He is perfect, not only in His person, but also in His work. Not a jot, not an iota was left unfulfilled in the law. He was and is and forever will be the perfect sacrifice, the only acceptable sacrifice to you. We thank you for a cross, for the cross of Calvary that he was nailed to, where his blood was shed, where your wrath was poured out upon him, where when guilty sinners such as us look, we lose all our guilty stains. We are washed, we are cleansed, we are made right before you. We are given a robe of righteousness without one stitch missing. A comprehensive righteousness. It's all ours in Him. Oh, Father, help us to see Him in His person and work. And help us, flowing out of that, to know who we are in Him. We ask that You would dig out for us an ear to hear Your Word. We ask that You would cause the scales to fall off our eyes in order that we would see You in Your Word. Give us hearts of flesh. Take out the hearts of stone in order that we would be tender and sensitive to all that we would hear. In order that we would make appropriate adjustments that our repentance would be full. That our faith would look out in a way to Him and cling to Him. Father, I don't ask this just for me or for my household. I ask this for all those who are under the sound of my voice right now in this little congregation. While on others you are giving this sight of Christ, while on others you are calling, while on others you are cleansing, please God, for the glory of Christ, do not pass anyone in this assembly by. We ask all of this in the mighty, saving, cleansing name of Christ. Amen. Well, God is holy. He's separate. He's set apart from His creation. He's separate as the Creator is separate from the creation. He is separate as the holy, undefiled, and pure one is separate from the unholy, defiled, and impure members of Adam's fallen race. We could also say it like this. God is in a category all His own. He is as high as the heavens are above the earth, above us and all creation. This distance between God and His creation at large. This distance between God and us is great. It was great to begin with when all things were good. When Adam had not transgressed. When he had not sinned against the law of God. But after the fall, the distance widened and became an infinite gulf. A canyon impossible to cross. And yet... From all eternity, as we heard prayed in our prayer meeting, God purposed to close the distance between Himself and creation. He purposed to draw near to Adam's fallen race. In types and shadows, what we see in the Old Testament, 
He drew near through prophets and priests and kings. He drew near through signs and wonders. However, he most clearly, most wonderfully, most triumphantly drew near in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus, God is seen. God is heard. God is felt, as it were. In Jesus, the desires and the will of God are revealed. They're exposited for us. We don't have to wonder about God's desires and His will if we will but look to Jesus and hear His words and see His actions. Today's passage, Luke chapter 5, verses 12 through 16, are a window into the character of God. He is holy without question, separate from all others. But he is simultaneously compassionate. He draws near to the most desperate, to the most undone of his creation. And that leads us into Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 12. In verse 12, we see described the desperation of the leper. In verse 12, we see the desperation of the leper. While Jesus was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. The leper came to Jesus. Is that more Bible talk? Is that something that you read over? And since you've heard it as many times as I have throughout the course of your life, it doesn't seem on the surface to have any significance or special value. But the fact that this man came to Jesus is especially significant. This man was a Jew. He was raised in the Jewish system. He was familiar with the law, specifically the Levitical law. The Levitical law that strictly, explicitly forbid him from doing this. Listen to Leviticus chapter 13, verses 45 and 46. Moses writes, The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. The leper, knowing that Jesus was in the city, blatantly disregarded these laws. He did not remain alone. He did not remain outside the camp. He did not announce himself when he was at a distance entering the city or getting nearer to Jesus and his band of disciples. The severity of his leprosy drove him to make these desperate measures. And it's Luke the physician who records his dire situation. Matthew doesn't speak as Luke speaks. Mark doesn't speak as Luke speaks. It's Luke the physician who writes that this man was full of leprosy. That is, he was covered in every part of his body with leprosy. Or to put it another way, he had an advanced and likely terminal case of leprosy. In these advanced cases of leprosy, the flesh was eaten away 
It was infected and rotting. The flesh smelled and it oozed pus into the clothes, onto the people. Fingers and toes, as well as noses and ears, would fall off. The man that comes to Jesus full of leprosy is a mass of rotting flesh. This morning, if I could, I would make you see him. I would make you smell him. I would make you, to some degree, know his revulsion and his ostracization. The suffering in body and soul that he suffered. Literally, we could say this man was the walking dead. Dying bodily, having already been cut off from the living. He is left to himself. This man comes to Jesus. This man comes to Jesus and he hurls himself at the feet of Jesus. There's no easy, glib walk up to Jesus. He doesn't go by the proper protocol of the Levitical law. He comes desperate. He comes as an unclean man who craved with all his heart and all his mind cleanness and purity. He came as a man who craved restoration to be joined back into the population of Israel to see family, to see friends, to join once more into the worship of God in the temple. He craved it. But he also came as a man begging for what he did not deserve and what he could not earn. This personal, this felt need of the leper drives him. It presses him out of his loneliness, out of his being outside the camp, and near to Jesus to urgently appeal. The leper didn't waste his words. He spoke clearly. He spoke directly. He got straight to the heart of the matter. It's as though he had rehearsed it a thousand times over and he knew that when the opportunity came and he set before Jesus, this is what I must say. I must risk it in order to save my life and be cleansed. Notice how this man addresses Jesus. He comes desperately. He throws himself at Jesus' feet. He begs as a man desperate for life, desperate for cleansing. And he addresses Jesus as Lord. He respects Jesus. He reveres Jesus. He knows that Jesus is a man worthy of honor and distinction. And he believes that Jesus can heal him. He believes it. He believes that Jesus has that ability and power. However, there's still a question in his mind, though he comes humbly, though he believes the ability and power of Jesus, he submits himself. Don't miss this. He submits himself to the sovereign prerogative of Jesus. If you are willing, you can. I know you've healed others. I know your ability. I know your power. But in coming and addressing Jesus in this way, knowing what he knows, he still leaves it up to Christ. 
He entrusts himself. He entrusts his cleansing into Jesus' hands, essentially saying, I know you can, but Jesus, do what seems good to you in regard to me. Well, apart from Jesus, all people everywhere are spiritually leprous. All are unclean. All are alone. All are outside the camp. Every man, woman, and child has an advanced terminal case of spiritual leprosy. The spiritual leprosy is in the bones. It's in the blood. It's in the flesh. Each individual apart from Christ is a walking death. All efforts to will themselves to health, to scrub up their leprosy, to clean out the wounds, to get all back to the way it was before this leprosy, only makes the situation worse, only makes the sickness worse. As bleak as the condition of spiritual leprosy is, this is what every individual outside of Christ must come to grips with. You must come to grips with your condition before Him. Before you will come to Him. This man was desperate. That is what drove him. That is what pressed him. That is what sent him running and falling and begging. It's only that kind of person that sees that condition of their soul, their heart, their mind. When you see that, it sets your feet in motion. It sets you on a path to seek out Jesus and not rest until you find Him. Not rest until you are cleansed of your spiritual leprosy. Believer, it might be a little bit of a strange application, but I think it's a necessary application for us all as we follow Jesus. You must remember the days of your spiritual leprosy. Remember them well. Trace your mind back over the days, the weeks, the months, the years of your leprosy before you met the great physician and were healed. Meditate on them. Recall being clean, alone, and outside the camp. For some, whether in this church or elsewhere, you were religious before you came to the great physician, before you were washed in the blood of Christ. The outside of your cup was clean. You were outwardly spotless. You were respected by many, if not all. You were similar to Saul of Tarsus before he met Jesus. He writes in Philippians chapter 3, verses 4-7, through seven, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more, says Saul. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. You had that kind of religious pedigree. Bible reading, 
Bible knowledge, mission trips, conversations with others about God. Maybe you led a Bible study. Maybe you led out in prayer. Maybe you preached. Whatever you would insert into your own religion that you thought would endear you to God and give you, in a sense, cleansing from your spiritual leprosy. There came a day when you could say with the Apostle Paul, whatever gain I had in these accomplishments, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. It was nothing. But for others, not so religious, you were irreligious in your spiritual leprosy. The outside of the cup, and look, this isn't a dig on people with tattoos, all right? The outside of the cup was tattooed, it was graffitied, it was chipped up, it was dirty, the handle was missing, all right? You were outwardly foul, respected by those around you, but by none of the supposed clean religious people. You were similar to the description given by Eliphaz in Job chapter 15, verse 16. You were one who is abominable and corrupt. A man or woman or child who drinks injustice like water. You must remember the days, believer, of your spiritual leprosy. Because in remembering them, you see how deep Christ has cleansed you. You see how far Christ has brought you. You see the depth of your pollution. But more than that, you see the depth of His cleansing power. In seeing the depth of your cleansing, you're humbled once more, realizing that you have no cause to boast in anyone but Jesus of Nazareth. In seeing the depth of your cleansing, you're made to praise His glorious name. A person who is cleansed in the way that this leper was, but in, even, in an even greater way spiritually, they cannot keep their mouths shut. They cannot keep their lips smacked together. They must speak to others, whether it's their spouse or their children or their co-workers or their elders or their deacons or the stranger at Walmart. They must speak of this Jesus who cleansed them, who washed them in His blood, and made them his own. In seeing the depth of your cleansing, you are made to have a Jesus-like compassion on those who are in the same spiritual condition that you once were. Such compassion involves pointing them to the only one who can cleanse them. Remember your leprosy, believer. Do not forget it. Unbeliever, you must come to grips with your spiritual leprosy. With the depth of your stain. The description given earlier of this physical leper matches up to you in your spiritual leprosy. Presently. In this very moment. If you are outside of Christ, as gross and horrific as that description was of this man's physical body, the real description of your spiritual condition is far worse, far more putrid, far more rancid, far more terminal. Don't cover up your disease. 
Stop pretending that you aren't sick. Look your sickness in the eye when you look in a spiritual mirror of the law. It has not, it is not, and will not do you any good to pretend, to make believe, to live in a fantasy world. Hear my words this morning, unbeliever. The diagnosis of your soul is terminal. You are the walking dead. Let that reality rest on you. Let it descend from the heavens like a great mountain and press in upon your soul. Feel it. Don't seek to get out from under it. You need it. Because then and only then will you seek with the leper's desperation the one who alone can cleanse you. Well, as verse 12 describes the desperation of the leper, verse 13 describes the willingness and ability of Jesus. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Jesus is the Holy One of Israel. He is set apart. He is separate from all others. This Jesus of Nazareth that we read about on the pages of Scripture, He is unpolluted by the condition of the leper. But understand this, He is not unmoved by the condition of the leper. He is moved. Jesus' holiness and Jesus' compassion are not in conflict. It's quite the opposite. His holiness His compassion are in perfect harmony. He would not be Jesus if He had one or the other. He is our Jesus and He is perfectly holy and perfectly compassionate. It's out of this holiness, it's out of this compassion that Jesus stretches out His holy hand. And I would add to that His holy heart to the leper who is thought to only be worthy of revulsion and hatred. Notice that Jesus wasn't satisfied to stretch out His hand and say, I will be clean. He wasn't merely satisfied there. Jesus stoops. He stretches out His hand and He lays that holy hand the hand of the living and true God in the flesh upon a vile sinner, upon a corrupt member of Adam's fallen race. He touches this man who had not been touched and who knows how long. Touched with the feeling of the leper's infirmity, Jesus laid His hand upon him. The Holy Son of God, the great physician in the flesh, stooped to touch this diseased one. And notice, Jesus wasn't coerced. He wasn't forced by any stretch of the imagination to stretch out His hand and touch this man and make this pronouncement, exercise His will and power in this man's life, in His body. He wasn't acting either. What we see in Jesus in this moment is the fullness of His person exercised, 
Heart, mind, soul, and strength united in holiness, yes, but as well united in compassion to this man. Jesus freely and gladly did this. And Jesus speaks his willingness to the leper. The divine prerogative that this leper left up to Jesus, that he entrusted into Jesus' hands, I know you can, but if you will, you can make me clean. The divine prerogative was to cleanse him from his advanced terminal case of leprosy. As every part of the man had been polluted, his bones, his blood, his flesh, so Jesus cleansed every part of this man. The leper was thoroughly and completely cleansed. He didn't have to wait to be cleansed. He wasn't progressively cleansed by Jesus, though Jesus could have taken that route if he chose. With the words of Jesus, this man was immediately cleansed of his leprosy. As he had been full of leprosy, now he was full of health and vitality, according to the holy compassion of Jesus. Well, in verse 13, the willingness and ability of Jesus are on full display. He wills to do, and he is able to do helpless sinners good. He wills to make and is able to make the most polluted sinners clean and whole. He desires to do so, and he delights to do so. He draws near to do so. The spiritual cleansing that Jesus gives, like he gave to this physical leper, touches every square inch of the person. If you have been cleansed by the blood of Christ, by faith in him, every square inch of you, heart, mind, soul, and strength, has been cleansed. He leaves no part of his people unclean. If you are in him by faith, you are comprehensively clean, unalterably clean, spotless with his spotlessness, holy with his holiness, righteous with his righteousness, and you have been made to be so in the blink of an eye. Believer, hear me. Really hear me. You are clean. Jesus willed that you would be clean. He cleaned you. And the cleansing of Jesus cannot be undone. You cannot be made unclean again. Objectively, as it stands right now, by faith in Jesus, you are clean. That's the way that He sees you now. That's the way that He will see you forever. That's the way the Father sees you now. That's the way the Father will see you forever. That's the way the Spirit sees you now. That's the way the Spirit will see you forever. You will be clean until you see Him face to face. You will be clean on into the endless ages of eternity. You are clean on your good days. You are clean on your bad days. You are clean when you feel like it, and you're clean when you don't feel like it. You're clean when you are full of faith and follow hard after Him. 
and you're clean when you're despairing, fretting as to whether or not this could possibly be true of you. Unbeliever, you are unclean. However, Jesus wills to do and is able to do helpless sinners just like you good. You must come to Jesus as the desperate leper came to Jesus. Risk it all. Remember what our hymn says, venture wholly, venture nigh. Your situation is far too desperate. Your need is far too great for you to hang back alone outside the camp. Risk it. Run to Him. Beg His cleansing. Beg His wholeness to be granted to you. Hear the words of J.C. Ryle, 19th century Anglican bishop in Liverpool, England. He says, Let us always remember that if men are not saved, it is not because Jesus is not willing to save them. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He would have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. He has no pleasure in the death of him that dies. He would have gathered Jerusalem's children as a hen gathers her chicks, if they would have only been gathered. He would, but they would not. The blame of the sinner's ruin must be borne by himself. Sinner, if you are ruined fully and finally, it is not Jesus' fault. It is not because he was unwilling. It is your fault securely. You would not. It's your own will and not Christ's if you are lost forever. So unbeliever, he is willing. He is able. Doubt no more. Come to Jesus. Well, verse 14 moves on to describe the solemn charge of Jesus. So we've seen the desperation of the leper, the willingness and ability of Jesus. Now we look to the solemn charge of Jesus. And he, that is Jesus, charged him, the leper, to tell no one. But go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. Jesus charged this man to tell no one. Scholars are back and forth, disagreed, like scholars naturally are, about what is going on here and why Jesus would charge this man to tell no one. But I think the clearest and the simplest explanation for Jesus' charge to the leper was so that Jesus would avoid attracting a particular kind of crowd. He didn't want to attract a crowd that only came to seek physical healing who only came to him for superficial reasons, who only came because they wanted to, to get something out of Jesus, their health, and then return back to their own selfish living. Rather, Jesus wanted the crowds to come to him in order to regard the message that he gave, which symbolized, which powerfully illustrated the healing. 
So he charges the man to tell no one. And then he tells the man essentially this, to sum it up, obey the Levitical law. Uphold God's law. He says to the man, go show yourself to the priest. Make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded there in Leviticus. And this is simply what was going on. If I've lost you, come back to me now, all right? In thinking about the Levitical law and the significance of why Jesus told this man to do this, we have to understand what's happening. This law required the man to, like we'd said, go to the priest, present himself to prove that his leprosy had been healed in order that he could be restored back to full social and full religious fellowship with Israel. If this man passed inspection, he had to bring the required offering. We see that in Leviticus chapter 14, verses 1 through 7. That offering consisted of two clean living birds. One of the birds had to be killed, and the other living bird had to be dipped into the dead bird's blood. And after it was dipped into the dead bird's blood, it would then be released. The blood of the dead bird was then sprinkled over the head of the leper, presenting himself to the priest seven times. And the significance of this seven-time sprinkling was this. Then and only then could the leper be pronounced clean. All of this had to occur. This was mandatory. It was required for this man. If after all of this power being demonstrated in his life, if all of this healing had been executed in his body, then he still had to fulfill the Levitical law. It was still necessary. Jesus didn't come to nullify or abolish the law. He came to fulfill it, even if it was itself a type and shadow of him. Well, point of application. Jesus is God. He's God in the flesh. He spoke now, or He spoke, and now He speaks with simplicity and clarity. He spoke and now speaks with authority and power. As He is infinite, as He is eternal, almighty, and unchangeable, so we must hear Him. We must stop and take notice of His Word when He speaks to us. However, simply or extraordinarily, as we hear Him, we must heed Him. His Word must be obeyed immediately and exactly. All right, a little window into the Floyd household. We have an obedience catechism, all right, made up on the fly. When Davis disobeys, comes to me, I say, Davis, what did you do? I disobeyed. How, am I, how are you supposed to obey? <sighs> Immediately and exactly. Right? That is the way that obedience must occur. Not just from a child to a parent, but from the believer to God. When He speaks, and we, listening to His voice, heeding His voice, we too must obey immediately and exactly. 
His word must be obeyed from a heart of love wherever we find his word speaking to us. Think of the words of Jesus in these terms. Two from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. The word of Jesus. David writes in Psalm 119, verse 103, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. When you hear the command of Jesus, wherever it comes to you in the Scriptures, when it comes to you, do you think in those terms? Is that the cry of your heart? Is that the thought of your mind? Is that what is the undercurrent of your obedience? These are sweet words, wonderful, nourishing words. Hear Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16. Jeremiah writes, Your words were found, and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord of hosts. The word of Jesus, found, eaten, delighted in. Does that describe the way that you think, the way that you respond when you come across his commands in Scripture? What about the Apostle John, the Apostle that Jesus loved? Hear what he writes. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Do you feel his commandments to be a burden? Or do you, out of love, obey and find them to be all that he's described them to be, in the totality of Scripture. Here again, the words of David when it comes to a proper response to his words, to the commands of Christ. David encapsulates this determination perfectly. And ask yourself, believer, is this how I read the Scriptures? Is this how I think about the commands of God? He writes, I hasten, I quickly Obey and do not delay from keeping your commandments. David hastens. He makes haste. He does not delay. His obedience, we could say, is immediately and exact. As immediately and exactly as a saved sinner could obey, that is David's great effort, his great desire. Bible commentator Matthew Poole writes on this verse in Psalm 119, verse 60. He says, being fully convinced of the necessity and excellency of obedience, I presently resolve upon it and immediately put the command into execution. Isn't that the kind of obedience that Christ deserves? If we see other saints throughout the ages speak of his word in this way, if we see other saints throughout the ages talk in terms of hastening and not delaying his commandments, do we think that we live in an age when we are not able to do as they did, to obey as they obeyed? Don't we live in the time of the new covenant? We often sing about covenant fullness and glorious flood. Well, in that covenant fullness, there is the fullness of the Spirit, infinite, 
eternal, almighty God holding us up, empowering us to do all that we need to do for life and godliness, all that we need to do in order to follow Jesus on the path. If he is the one who is indwelling us, if he is the one who is undergirding us, if he is the one who's truly empowering us, then we are able. We are able to delight in the word of Jesus and we are able to obey the word of Jesus. <clears throat> Think with me just for a brief moment about some commands that come to us as believers. I'm just going to read them, so listen. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Paul writes to that beloved church in Philippi and says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Is that sweet? Are you able? By Jesus, yes, to both. What about Ephesians 5? Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Ephesians 5, verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The word of Christ, the word of Jesus, <clears throat> a joy, a delight, not a burden. The word of Jesus hastened to be obeyed, not delayed in its obedience. Covenant fullness in glorious flood, the fullness of the Spirit poured out for you, believer, to do Philippians 2, 3, and 4, Ephesians 5, 22, and 25, and Ephesians 1, 6, 1 through 4. He has done all that is necessary for you to obey his word. He's created this affection, this desire in the heart. And he's given all that you need to be strengthened to do it. Take heart, believer. What about the unbeliever? The word of Jesus. It is not sweet to you. His commands do seem as a burden. They are not a joy. They are not a delight. They might be useful for some intellectual knowledge or some verbal jousting with a friend or a parent or someone else to demonstrate how much you know about religion. But they are not the words of your beloved. But hear the words of this gracious one to you. Hear the words of Jesus. He says, I tell you, Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Those are gracious words to the undeserving, who deserve no warning of their destruction. He goes on to say, 
in John chapter 8, verse 24. He says this in the midst of the Pharisees who plot his murder, his death. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. He owed them nothing. These gracious words, if he was thinking like an earthly son of Adam, would not have been given. But he spoke them. If those sound a bit too harsh, not palatable to you, hear again the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 through 30. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The great physician calls out to you with these gracious words. Come. Unbeliever, do you feel how heavy laden you are? How you are restless. How you chase after thing after thing, person after person, in order that you might, you just might. I hope, says the unbeliever, that I will be satisfied and really saved by this person or this thing or this future occurrence. But Jesus says, come to me, put down all of your silly, vain efforts, cast yourself at my feet, Call upon me for salvation, for salvation belongs to me. Ask of me to give you peace and rest of soul, of heart and mind, and I will give it. Plead with me to be gentle and lowly, compassionate toward you, and I will be. You will find rest for your souls. Remember the words of Augustine, a man acquainted thoroughly acquainted with sin, who went whole hog into his sin, who drank it like water, he said, the restless soul will never find its rest, O God, until it finds its rest in Thee. Unbeliever, come to Him. Well, moving on to verse 15. Verse 15 describes the spread of Jesus' fame. But now even more the report about Him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear Him and to be healed of their infirmities. The healed man completely ignored Jesus' charge to tell no one. Alright? We can all probably sympathize with this man. We've been a leper for no telling how long. We haven't seen friends or family. We haven't been in the temple to offer sacrifice or worship to God. But here is something that I didn't think of before studying for this and want to say to you now, the man did disobey. Jesus said, tell no one. And he should have told no one except to go to the priest and to present himself and offer a cleansing as it was prescribed in the Levitical law. 
And according to Mark's gospel, this healed man led the way in this disobedience. But even in light of this man's disobedience, Jesus' fame spread even more than before. Crowds started to gather to hear him. And after they'd heard him, they could say with the officers of John chapter 7, verse 46, no one has ever spoken like this man. They could say with those in Matthew chapter 7, he speaks as one with authority and power. These crowds not only come to hear what Jesus has to say, but they come to bring their sick. And like those who gathered to hear him, those who gathered to heal their sick could say, no one has ever healed like this man. All the rest have been charlatans. They've been snake oil salesmen. Whatever remedy they could offer, it wears off in a little bit. But this Jesus, he cleanses. And he cleanses to the uttermost those who come to him. Now, a word about Jesus' fame. A report about Jesus. Whereas this man unlawfully spread the fame of Jesus, we live now in a time when we can lawfully and by the command of Jesus spread his fame abroad. It is good and right for his name to be on the lips of every man, woman, and child. He, that is Jesus of Nazareth, must be a, a household name so to speak, a constant source of conversation in those households in which we live and in those workplaces in which we work. He must be our water cooler talk, so to speak. The latest, most fascinating, most interesting, most wonderful thing that takes up our mind, takes up our conversation, and takes up all that we are. Great crowds must gather to hear about Jesus' glorious person and work. In other words, Jesus must be preeminent. He must be supreme in the hearts and minds and lives of all. Especially, this ought to be true, in His people. I want to ask you this morning, Christ Church, is He famous in your heart? Is he famous in your household? Is he your topic of conversation? Is he the topic of conversation at your kitchen table and in your living room and in the kids' bedrooms? Do you gather to hear him, so to speak, speak in this book called the Bible? Do you gather to hear him as a family gathered round his word to worship him? Not as individual units, but as a household. Do you bring your spiritually sick to Him to be healed by Him? In prayer, you lift them up. If you will, you can clean them. And in corporate worship, bring your spouse, bring your children, Bring your friends to gather around this word to hear about this Jesus in order that they would be healed, spiritually cleansed. Do you bring them all in? Oh, believer, spread the report of his 
fame wherever you are. Make the name of Jesus a household name for you and your household first. Don't call anyone to do what you're not doing. Don't ask them to speak affectionately, desirously, to obey lovingly if you are not already. Make His name a household name. Speak His name continually with love and reverence and a Pauline enthusiasm that erupts in doxology because of who He is and what He's done. Gather to hear Him as often as you and your household are able. Gather and bring your sick with you so that they might be healed. Do you understand what I mean? Well, lastly, as we would think about Jesus of Nazareth, the great physician, the great cleanser and healer, verse 16, the end of this passage, closes in what would on the surface seem a peculiar way. We read, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Jesus would steal away to private places to commune with his Father in heaven. This was usually before or after important and intense times of ministry. He would pour out his heart to his Father in heaven. He would go to his Father in heaven in order to be strengthened. We could talk about it like this. Jesus would fill up the reservoirs of his body and his soul from his Father's inexhaustible resources. That is what he went to do when he prayed to his Father in private, when he sought out these desolate places. And as Christ did, so we must, believer. Stealing away to be with our God in prayer is essential. This stealing away is essential for our uh, earthly intimate relationships. Think of it. If communication and connection will be maintained, we must get alone without distraction with our loved ones. If true intimacy will be achieved, we must be jealous for that time and for that interaction. When we're jealous for it, we will steal away. We will set aside time in advance or jump at the opportunity for times of this interaction when it presents itself. We will. We do what we want. We do what we want and we go after what we desire. The same is true of our times in prayer, our times of communion with God. He is the beloved of the believer. He is our precious one, the altogether lovely one. He is our sovereign Lord. He's our King who extends to us morning by morning, day by day, a royal invitation into His presence. Believer, are you following hard after Jesus? Are times of prayer aided by the Holy Spirit? Do you feel like the time that you have with Jesus is brief, but even in its brevity, you find that minutes turn to hours? Have you felt like you're having another honeymoon period with Him? Things are good. If that's you, press on. 
If that's you, press in further. Ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. He Himself is the reward. If you are doing well, believer, keep on doing well. Do not slow down. Be the encouragement to your brothers and sisters around you to press on. Still others, I want to ask, have you grown busy and stealing away with Jesus has been pushed to the back burner? Have you grown cold toward Him and do not prioritize time with Him? Have your times with Him become academic and formal? You read your Bible, you mouth words, but there's no two-way interaction, a real transaction between your soul and Him. If that's the case, do not despair. Remind yourself of His person and work. Read over the pages of these Scriptures. See once more the one that your soul loves. The one that cleansed you by His blood. The one who brought you into the fold. Remind yourself of Him again and again and again. Take yourself, as it were, by the scruff of the neck and put yourself down into the Scriptures. Beat against them until your beloved speaks. Until you are once again enthralled with Him. And stealing away is, in a sense, the default Remind yourself of the love that you had for Him at first. Every believer can go back there, can't you? You remember this supermassive Christ came on to the scene in the horizon of your life. And for the first time, you had eyes to see Him. You had ears to hear Him. You had a heart to love Him. And every energy of your soul went out after Him. It seemed like breathing. It was natural. It seemed almost easy. Remember that. Go back to Him. And yet others, do you feel the pressures of life bearing down upon you, upon your family? Are cares and concerns coming at you from every direction? Has the thought crossed your mind, I don't know if I can handle anything else. I don't know if I can handle much more, God. For love of Christ, for the good of your soul, obey the command of David in Psalm 62, verse 8, where he writes, Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Pour your heart out. In thinking about this pouring out of our hearts to God in prayer, specifically private prayer, or maybe even thinking about it in corporate prayer, sometimes it comes out like you want it to. Right? You hold the cup, you have the pitcher, you pour, all the liquid makes it in <clears throat> to the cup. There we go, poured out. But other times, it is like a two year old with a gallon jug of orange juice. 
you see it from the end of the hallway. This two-year-old has the gallon jug opened and he's just slopping and pouring everywhere. It's the biggest mess you've ever seen. Does pouring your heart out to God feel like that sometimes? It can be clean, it feels like it ought, but then there are other times when you're an absolute mess. Well, wherever you find yourself, when those pressures come in, when the concerns gather around, when these thoughts cross your mind, trust Him. And pour out your heart to Him in its entirety, for He delights for you to do so. And as you do so, He comes underneath and you find the everlasting arms lifting you up. The lives, the lives of saints like George Mueller, Susanna Wesley, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Scott Dooley. Yes, I just threw him in there. All right. Are you here with me? Did you hear that? Scott Dooley with Martin Lloyd-Jones. These were finite creatures just like you and me. With cares, concerns, anxieties, just like ours. But each of them found somehow, some way to steal away to their Jesus. For Mueller, it was 4 a.m. every morning. He would dwell there until his heart was happy in Jesus. For Susanna Wesley, it was however long she could get with those however many children she had with the apron thrown up over her head. For Lloyd-Jones, he would sit facing a window in a chair and close his eyes and simply put his hands on his knees. And that's when mom, or his wife, and kids knew you don't bother husband. You don't bother dad. He's communing with the Lord, however briefly he can get it. And Scott Dooley, he told me this a few months before Chelsea and I got married. Once upon a time, he was working several jobs, going to bed at midnight, waking up at 4 a.m. And he told me, I still have a quiet time, even with four hours of sleep. Even as busy as I am, I'm still able to have a quiet time. It's 20 minutes. I'm thinking, well, that's not very spiritual, Scott. Only 20 minutes? He said, 20-minute quiet times, obviously they're not long. Your quiet times don't have to be long, but they have to be good. Well, how is a 20-minute quiet time, or really any quiet time, good? And this is what Scott said to me. Come hungry. Come thirsty. Let the last thought, the last meditation that you have before you pillow your head and fall asleep, let it be Jesus. Him and all His perfections. And he said, more often than not, that thought, that meditation, will follow you into your waking hours. And you will be hungry. You will be thirsty for Him, whatever amount of time you might have. And know this, whatever time, amount of time that you have, He is worthy of it. Worthy to be communed with to be enjoyed, to be worshipped. Well, in closing, I just want to remind us of these sweet reminders. Jesus is God. He's our God. 
He is holy. He is compassionate. He draws near to sinners. He is touched with our infirmities and stretched out his, stretches out his hand to us. He lays his hand on us. He cleanses the deepest spiritual leprosy. He makes sinners clean both now and forevermore. He welcomes them into his family to be his people both now and forevermore. He wills. He is willing. Are you willing? Whether in Jesus or outside of Jesus, the response must be the same. We must draw near to Him. We must steal away to Him. He desires to and delights to make us clean, to have fellowship with us. For all of us today, know this much. If you gain nothing else, He is willing. He is able. Doubt no more. Come to Jesus. Well, we'll close with the words of the Apostle Paul in the fifth chapter of his first letter to the Thessalonians. He writes, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen.